Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 22. Turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke 22 on page 828. So go ahead and turn there. I'm turning there as well. We're going to talk this morning about the Lord's Supper. So uh, one of the two sacraments that was ordained by Jesus. Jesus ordained the, the sacrament or the ordinance of baptism. Uh, in Matthew 28, at the Great Commission, uh, he ordained the, the practice of the Lord's Supper uh, here in Luke 22. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time. We're going to read it. We're going to consider uh, the Lord's Supper, what it is, uh, the function that it intends to serve in the, in the local church, what it symbolizes, and how we're supposed to practice it together in these kinds of things. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And so I am just going to jump right in and read Luke 22, verses 7 to 23. And then we'll pray, and then we'll, then we'll get rolling. It reads, Then came a day, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And as they went and found, and, and they went, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They begin to question one another, asking which of them was going to be who's going to Lord Jesus, we ask your blessing on these next few minutes. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and speak to us and, and help us to see your glory and your mercy and your goodness. And we pray that our encounter with you in your word, uh, that it would be a blessing to our souls. All right, the day came of the unleavened bread on which the Passover uh, lamb had to be sacrificed. This is why Jesus uh, came to Jerusalem. This is why they made this pilgrimage that we tracked with them uh, from Luke 9 all the way to Luke 19. The lion's share of the, the gospel of Luke is this big, long 
journey. And they're coming there specifically for the Passover, to celebrate the Passover. The entire nation would descend on Jerusalem, come to the temple to worship and offer sacrifices at the Passover. It dated back to the Exodus, right? Uh, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh was harsh and cruel, right? He would, uh, you know, uh, work them in forced labor. He would uh, kill their children when he was afraid that they were getting out of hand and there was too many of them. At one point, the Israelites go to Pharaoh and say, hey, uh, you're working us too hard. We're, We're dying. We're getting sick. Let's work out a mutually beneficial arrangement where we can work at a sustainable pace and not die, and you can have more workers to accomplish more work for you. And Pharaoh says no. He, he is crueler and harsher and beats them and, and you know gives them more and more work to do. Finally, God's people cry out to him, and God hears them, and he saves them. He sends all these signs and these plagues, and, and the last of all the plagues was the plague of the firstborn, the sign of the firstborn. God says he's going to come through uh, all of Egypt and he's going to kill the firstborn child of every uh, household. And God gives special instructions to his people. He says, I want you to take a lamb and kill it, take its blood, smear it on the doorposts of your home. When I come through the nation to kill every firstborn son, when I see the blood on the, the blood of the lamb on the door of your home, I'll pass over. It's the name Passover. I'll pass over. I won't uh, take the life of the firstborn son in your home. And so the the Egyptians are going to wake up and see that all of their firstborn sons are all dead. They're going to see that none of the Israelite sons are dead. They're going to realize that God is the king. And they're going to say, we don't want to keep enslaving the people of God and inviting his wrath and judgment on us. It's the Passover. And God instituted a special meal to be eaten Uh, at the first Passover, but also into perpetuity every year from that point forward to celebrate and commemorate and look back to the Passover. Once once the lamb has been slain, once the blood is on the doorpost, everyone get inside the the house, hide inside the house, right? Uh, Be safely hidden within the blood of the lamb, and then you're supposed to eat the lamb that you sacrifice along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Bitter herbs, literally, just because this is a bad, like this is a bitter situation that we're in here in slavery in Egypt. It's bitter. The bitter herbs that we eat are just to remind us of how bitter the situation was that God saved us from, and unleavened bread, uh, because um, because you are going to need to leave with haste. Is the, the language that that God uses in Exodus uh, chapter six, chapter twelve. Pharaoh's going to wake up. He's going to realize that his son has been killed by a God who is stronger than him. He's going to be mad. He's going to say, take your things and get out. I want you to leave. Uh, I want you to leave Egypt right now. So you don't have time. Uh, to, you know, you need to be ready to leave in, at a moment's notice. Gary and I have taken up a little bit of a hobby of bread baking recently. Probably most people did during the pandemic from what I, from what I have, have heard. But uh, pandemic started. We started binge-watching the Great British Baking Show, and so we watched a lot of that. I I got, you know, became very familiar with all the characters and all of the the hosts and everything, Uh, and um, we started baking. So I, like, looked up all these bread recipes, and we would, like, you know, and and the thing with baking bread, I didn't know this until we we learned it in the pandemic, is that it takes forever. 
Heck, uh, right now, someone gave us some starter, some sourdough starter recently, and it takes even longer because just the, the, you know, you have to get all the stuff, mix it together, knead it together, set it in the like a space of marginal heat, and let it prove or let it rise for hours and hours and hours. And you have to get it out again and knead it again and kind of mix it up again and then let set it let it prove for hours. I mean, it takes us it takes us multiple days to make one loaf of bread. By the time you do all the proving and all the rising and all of the kneading, and then finally the, the baking at the at the end. And so God is saying, uh, when he when God instructs his people to to you know eat unleavened bread uh, while they're inside their homes during the Exodus event, what he's saying is you don't have that kind of time. You don't have hours and hours to let your bread rise. He says, I want you to eat unleavened bread. Just basically mix all the stuff together and bake it right now. If it turns out as a cracker, I don't care. If it turns out as a a pita bread, I don't care. You don't have time to let this bread rise. we got to go because Pharaoh's going to wake up and he's going to give you zero lead time. He says you're going to need to leave. on. You have to eat with your feet on, standing up, with all of your clothes ready to go, your cloak tucked into your belt because literally when the when the sign comes, you're out of here. That's kind of the, the nature. That's kind of the, the vibe of that first Passover meal during the Exodus event. And so God wants them to re- remind themselves of that every year going forward. Eat bitter herbs to remind yourself and remember how bitter the situation was in Israel and eat unleavened bread to remind yourself and remember how hastily you left and kind of fled from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. That's the that's the Passover event. That's kind of how uh, God intended for the Passover event to function in the life of Israel. Its whole point is to is to help you reflect on, look back on, remember uh, the the Exodus event and how God saved you from slavery in Egypt. So that's what Jesus is here to celebrate. He comes from Galilee in northern Israel down to Jerusalem in southern Israel to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Since Peter and John, he says, go and prepare the Passover that we may eat it. And they say, where are we going to? Dude, Jesus, we don't have, you're, we're homeless. We don't have a place to go. We don't have a table. We don't have, like, where are we supposed to go to find, uh, you know, a place to eat the Passover? And Jesus says, hmm. he says, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him to his house that he enters and then tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, we, where is a guest room? that we may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room that is furnished. Prepare it there. One of two things is happening here. This is either uh, this is either like Jesus's divine foreknowledge. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything past, present, and future that has ever happened. And so he's kind of flexing his muscles a little bit. Um, or it's just a, a prior arrangement that was that, that Jesus, you know, knew this guy or knew that this guy's servant would be getting this water at this particular time of day and knew that this guy would let them in and, and use their their room. Not really sure. I mean, you know, some guys are pretty, some guys that I read are pretty certain one way or the other. It's definitely, um, you know, one, one thing that, so it's interestingly, right, it's, it's worth noting that if this is Jesus's divine omniscience and foreknowledge on display, that's just a word that's worth taking a moment to consider um, how how that works, right? How how the incarnation works, because whether this 
in particular was an example of Jesus' divine foreknowledge or not. The fact of the matter is, Jesus was omniscient. He did have uh, exhaustive knowledge of all things. He did have foreknowledge, past, present, and future. Some of the mystery of the incarnation is that is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Jesus has existed for all of eternity. Power, glory, reigning with the Father and the Spirit on his throne in heaven. And at the incarnation, Jesus became a man, but he didn't stop being God. So those two things are true at the same time. Water's on the wrong side. Um, which is interesting because... You know, when we think about it with our finite mind, there are aspects of being a man that are incompatible with being God, and there are aspects of being God that are incompatible with being a man. So it's kind of tough to understand how Jesus, you know, is 100% God and 100% man together at the same time in one person, right? Two natures, one person, right? How can Jesus be omniscient and know everything and be omnipotent and be able to do anything and be omnipresent and be everywhere at once and be you know morally perfect all of these attributes that belong to god jesus is god he never stopped being god while at the same time jesus was a man so he got tired he had to sleep he got hungry he had to eat right when he was like his mother had to teach him things how, do you, how can you be omniscient and know everything and also uh, have to learn things and be taught things by your mother? How can those both be true at the same, like Mary taught Jesus how to walk, how to talk. She taught him the Old Testament. He had to memorize. Jesus wrote the Old Testament because it's the word of God and he is God. And yet Jesus had to learn and memorize the Old Testament because his mom taught it to him. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Right? We, don't, we don't quite know exactly how this works other than that both of those things, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, both need to be affirmed in order for his, you know, kind of uh, office and function as savior of his people to be uh, to be viable. One theologian named Scott Swain uh, kind of tries to explain it this way. He says, the incarnation uh, is a matter of addition and not subtraction. The incarnation is a matter of addition and not subtraction. So here's Jesus fully God, possesses all the attributes and characteristics of God, not because he just has them, like he's carrying, uh, you know, bags into an airport, and, and then they say you have to check your bags, and so he checks his, his bags of divinity and then gets it right. They're, they're, they're him. They are intrinsic to who he is. They're a part of him. That He is not, uh, the attributes of God are not something he has, they're something that he is. And so Jesus, when he became a man, did not uh, subtract the attributes and characteristics of his divinity so that he become a man. He, he added to his divinity and the characteristics thereof, he added humanity. And frankly, the, the limitations and the characteristics and the, the, the you know, um, yeah, the attributes of humanity. He added to his divinity humanity. So was Jesus sovereign? Yes. Did he need to eat and sleep when he got hungry and tired? Yes. Was Jesus omnipotent? Yes. Did his mother need to teach him things. Yes, it's kind of a mystery that we uh, can't really explain, but nevertheless one that's critically important that we have to affirm the incarnation, God himself became a man, the uh, theologians call it the hypostatic union which is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He wasn't 50-50, he wasn't 90-10 right, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. 
So, Jesus. So Jesus says, go, prepare the room for the Passover. They say, you know, what's going to happen? He kind of points them to this guy. And then, of course, they went. So yeah, regardless of whether this was Jesus' foreknowledge or regardless of whether this was just a, a prior arrangement that had maybe been, been made with an old friend or by sending out a scout or something, it says they went and they found it exactly as he told him, and they prepared the Passover. That happens exactly as Jesus uh, intended for it to happen. And then when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. Table, so here's Jesus, 12 apostles. You might be envisioning the, uh, the painting by uh, Leonardo da Vinci. It's not, in, you know, painted in the, you know, whenever da Vinci was alive, what was it, 15th century, something like that, 16th century, long, long time after Jesus was alive. Uh, so it's not exactly accurate. The, the tables in the first century, you know, weren't like a table that we would sit at today. So the chair in front of it was kind of low to the ground, and you would kind of recline on your elbow. Your feet would be draped out behind you facing the wall, and your head would be kind of forward. So everyone's kind of faces would be kind of leaning in together. Food would be right there, and their feet would be kind of kicked out behind them. Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In other words, I am about to die. Right? The whole, the in, we're in the end game now. Right? We've had the, the opening and the middle game. Now we're in the end game. I am on the home stretch. I am about to, to this is literally the last meal I am going to eat. After this, within hours, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to go right from there to my trial. I'm going to go right from there to my execution. The next meal that I eat will be with God in heaven, right? In, in the kingdom of God. This is kind of the, the foreshadow of and the preliminary event to the messianic banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we're going to celebrate and eat together in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit until the, uh, of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Last bread, last meal, last wine, last drink. I am about to, about to die. Verse 19, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is huge. Do this in remembrance of me. That was not what they expected to hear. That was not what, uh, he's not following the script at that moment, right? Because the whole point with the Passover was, here's the bitter herbs, here's the unleavened bread. Do this in remembrance of the Exodus event that happened hundreds of years ago. Do this in remembrance of God saving his people from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me. Like this bread is not primarily intended to symbolize the haste with which we fled out of Egypt from Pharaoh's oppressive hand. This bread is primarily intended to symbolize my death for sin, my broken body. When you eat this meal, uh, don't do it primarily and exclusively in remembrance of the Exodus. Do it in remembrance of me. Meal isn't about the Exodus anymore. It never has been. It has been, but it wasn't uh, only about the Exodus. It wasn't most fully about the Exodus. 
deep down at its core, this meal was primarily and most fundamentally about the Savior who would come and give his life for his people so that they could have their sins forgiven. The part about make sure that it's unleavened so that you can eat it in haste because God's going to yank you out of Egypt and save you quickly, sure, that's fine. I guess it's about that, but most fundamentally it is about the broken body of Jesus on the cross. And Likewise, after they had eaten, he took the cup. Says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Wine was not a, a formal part of the Passover uh, you know, prescriptions in Exodus. But blood was, right? The blood of the lamb was. You kill the lamb, you take his blood, you put it on your, your door, and it's a way of saying, it's a way of publicly uh, identifying, right? Like we are a household of the people of God. I don't care who sees it, it's public, you can read it right there, there's blood there, we're hiding in it. The, the animal who shed that blood uh, has, has taken the wrath of God from us. God's anger and judgment against sin has followed on him instead of on us, and we are hiding in the sufficiency of its sacrifice for us. So Jesus is saying, just like the bread was initially about leaving Egypt in haste during the Exodus, but most fundamentally it's about my broken body on the cross. In the same way, the lamb that was sacrificed and its blood that was applied to the doorposts was initially about that moment, the Exodus event and fleeing from, from Pharaoh, but at, at its core, most fundamentally, it is about Jesus. Right? This wine represents my blood. That lamb's blood in Exodus represents my blood. I am the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who was slain for sinners, who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of the lamb at the Passover was pointing forward to the blood of Jesus that will be shed at the cross as the true and final payment for sin, which is why we see verses like these in the book of Hebrews. But when Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Look at the next one. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Every priest would repeatedly offer the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Christ offered a single sacrifice for all sins, for all time, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. There are no more sacrifices to be offered. This is the final one. This takes care of everything past, present, and future. The Passover was about the Exodus at first as a way of remembering it, but at its core, the Passover was about Jesus pointing forward to him that his body that we would be broken and his blood that would be shed. His death on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of his people. We're actually going to spend the entire season of Lent next year looking at the crucifixion. So we're, we're coming up on the, the Gospel of Luke. We're going to spend uh, yeah the six weeks of Lent in Luke 23 looking at Jesus' death on the cross and burial. And then, Lord willing, we'll arrive in Luke 24 with the resurrection on Easter uh, Sunday. 
this is a, a preliminary, this is a foreshadowing of that event and of what is going to, to happen. There. But Jesus also says it's not just that this cup represents my blood that is poured out for you and that is shed for you, which is true. This cup is also the means by which the new covenant is inaugurated. This cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant. The, the old, uh, the, there were a series of, of covenants in the old, they were all effectively manifestations of or iterations of the old covenant. There was the, you know, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Over and over and over, God makes covenants with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And they all are kind of versions of the same covenant which is the Old Covenant, a covenant with promises and stipulations and blessings and curses. If you are faithful, I will bless you in this way. If you are unfaithful, then I will bring judgment and I will send you into exile in, in this way. The Old Covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, we see a description of the New Covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in the days after these, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Old covenant, I wrote it on the tablets at Sinai. New covenant, I write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. I want you to know the Lord because you don't currently right now at the moment. Because in the new covenant, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their sins and their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant, unlike the old covenant, and unlike all of the iterations of the old covenant, is going to be different. It's going to be better. It's going to be unique. It's going to be new. In the, in the old covenant, God's people had to obey God. In the new covenant, God draws people to himself. He regenerates their hearts. He gives them new desires and new affections to follow him. In the, the old covenant, there were believers and non-believers, and each person had to kind of say to the others, hey, believe in God, trust in God. In the new covenant, we all believe in God. We all trust God because it's made up of regenerate believers. The new covenant is new, and it's, and it's better. And Jesus is saying, that new covenant that we saw anticipated in Jeremiah chapter 31, it's here now. It's inaugurated now. It starts now. It's a better covenant. It's a, it's a lasting covenant. It's, it's ratified by blood that actually has the power to wash away sins. Unlike the blood of bulls and goats that were sacrificed under the old covenant, Jesus' blood has the power to wash away sins. His blood pleads for us. It speaks a better word for us than the blood of, of Abel's that was shed in Genesis. Right? There's not a sin that we have ever committed or could ever commit that is not covered by Jesus's priceless, precious blood. He says, my blood is what inaugurates the new covenant. My blood is what secures your admittance into the new covenant. And the new covenant community is where you enjoy the, the blessing of God, the presence of God, the favor of God, the salvation of God. 
verses 7 to 14, Jesus came to celebrate the Passover. Verses 15 to 18, Jesus came knowing that he was going to die uh, imminently very soon. Verses 19 to 20, Jesus re-centers the Passover meal and shows us its true meaning that it's most fundamentally about him as opposed to the Exodus event or anything else. In verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus is there with his 12 disciples, including Judas Iscariot, man who's going to betray Jesus, right? He's going to, he's going to hand him over into the custody of Roman guards. But by the end of this chapter, right? By the, by the time we are at the end of Luke 22, Judas is going to hand Jesus over, and Jesus knows this. John 6, 64, it says, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew all along that Judas was going to betray him. It kind of raises the question of why he chose Judas. Right? Like, he knew before he ever called Judas to be his disciple that Judas was going to betray him. Right? Like, we don't naturally invite betrayal and hurt and rejection in like you know you you take a long time dating someone engagement figuring out if you want to marry them because the whole point is i don't want them to betray me i don't want them to hurt me so i'm going to be very guarded with who i let get this close right job interview i'm going to do our due diligence i'm going to make sure that this person uh, is going is uh, good we don't want to hire the wrong person right you choose your friends carefully make sure that you like them that you like hanging out with them because we don't want to be betrayed. We want to be able to trust people. We want to be able to put our guard down around the people that are close to us and have some semblance of assurance that we are not going to be blindsided. So why would Jesus invite a traitor, a betrayer, into his inner circle, into the, the men that he you know kind of positioned around himself to be his safe place where he can let his guard down and where he can um, trust? I mean, a number of reasons. One, one, Jesus knew that he was going to the cross, right? Like he, the whole reason he came, the whole mission that he was on, and so the, you know, the steps that he takes to get there, whether it's, you know, through being betrayed by his friend or some other means, is, is kind of, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's he's inevitably going to end up at the cross anyway, so the, the details aren't that, that big of a deal. There's also a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Psalm 55 anticipates that the Messiah would be betrayed by their close friend. Zechariah 11 implies that it would be for financial gain and silver uh, would be involved changing hands. I think that, I think that maybe the, the biggest reason or the most important reason why Jesus intentionally chose Judas to be in his inner circle despite the fact that he knew that Judas would betray him and hurt him so that Jesus can empathize with sinners and sufferers. So that Jesus can know and be intimately familiar with what we are experiencing when we are in the throes of suffering and, and heartbreak and betrayal and rejection. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus is our high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted as we are in every possible respect yet was without sin. 
feeling at your worst, you're feeling particularly tempted to fall prey to the sins of selfishness and self-indulgence, Jesus has been there and he never sinned. When you feel, when someone's betrayed you, they lie to you, turn their back on you, speak out against you, slander you, cut off communication with you, choose someone else instead of you, when you're tempted to be upset, when you feel entitled to be upset, when you feel entitled to self-righteousness and self-pity and and plotting revenge, Jesus has been there, yet was without sin. I would submit that the reason that Jesus intentionally chose Judas as a disciple, despite knowing that he would betray him, is so that Jesus could experience what we experience, feel what we feel, sympathize with us, empathize with us, so that he can show us mercy when we are at our worst, and when we are experiencing the height of, of suffering. Verse 22, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, right? What's going to happen to me is what's going to happen to me. That's just that's just a given, right? The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he, the Son of Man, is betrayed. An interesting sentence, right? Everything goes for me as has been determined before the foundation of the world. Nothing can be changed. It's already set in stone. It's predetermined. God's sovereignly laid out the plan and the roadmap, but also woe to the person who rejects me and betrays me and causes it to happen. We tend to think, all right, well, if everything is mapped out, if God is sovereign, if everything is predetermined, right, by someone long ago, then obviously we can't be responsible for our actions and our decisions here. God's sovereignty can't possibly be compatible with our own responsibility. Or if we're responsible, if we're active agents, if we make decisions and we're held accountable for our decisions, then obviously God can't be sovereign. Either God is at the mercy of the decisions that we make or we are at the mercy of God's sovereign will that he put in place in eternity past, but they can't both be true, and Jesus is saying they're both true. God is sovereign. He has determined how this is going to unfold, and Judas is responsible, and he is inviting the judgment of God on himself for the sins that he is engaging in. Those two seem a little bit incompatible with one another, but the Bible affirms them both wholeheartedly, and without reservation, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. The, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God's in charge. He's in control. Nothing is outside of his sovereign will. When people turn to Christ and trust in him, uh, it's because God has acted on them and saved them through his sovereign grace. And we have real responsibility, real agency. We make real decisions with real consequences when we sin when we fall short of God's glory, when we inflict pain on others, we can't point the finger at anyone else and say, it's your fault, not mine. We can't point the finger at God and say, it was your will, not mine. Because God is sovereign and we are responsible. Those two 
are both affirmed together and are thus compatible with one another. In verse 23, they begin to question one another, saying, which of them, or yeah, which of them it could be who is going to do this? So they all, like, as soon as Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, everyone's instinctive response is, it's obviously not me, but which one of you is it? It's probably you. It's probably you. You did this. That makes me think that you're more inclined to, to do it, right? No one says, oh, like, no, no one responds with silence. No one responds with humility. No one responds with a sober judgment of thinking, I am not above this life-altering sin. I need to be humble. I need to be careful. I need to be watchful. I need to repent of my sin. Instead, they say, obviously, it's not me. I'm above it. I'm better than it. I have arrived. That sin is so bad that it could never touch someone like me. But which one of you could it possibly be related to? Friends, we need to take sin seriously. We need to be quick to repent. We need to be quick to confess. We need to be diligently, militantly fighting against sin in our lives because we are not above it. We are not impervious to the temptation and the dangers of sin and its effects in our lives. God looks at Cain after he kills his brother and he says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to destroy you and kill you, but you must rule over it. The posture of a Christian as it relates to sin is not, is not prideful presumption, that I could never fall prey to that. But rather, it's a humble resolve to fight against sin at all costs and to kill it lest we be killed by it. That's the institution of the Lord's Supper. I want to close with just three brief um, Three brief ways in which the Lord's Supper is intended to function in the life of the local church. Three, three things that it is designed to, to help us to do, to cause us to do uh, as believers in the church. To remember, to appropriate, and to celebrate. The Lord's Supper was instituted so that the people of God in the church could remember Christ's death for sin. Right? Initially it was the Passover, now it's the Lord's Supper, but there's specific elements, the language is specific, the whole purpose is to help our minds to rehearse and reflect and remember Christ's body was broken for us, Christ's blood was shed for us, and it's to be done onward, like into perpetuity, all the time, constantly, every time you gather, once a month, whenever, like this, this sacrament is to be done regularly to remind you and to help you remember, because we need help remembering. Even, even things that are central and fundamental and, and formative, we need help right, remembering them. In, in secular organizations and businesses, it's called uh, mission drift. Right? You found a company, you build a mission statement, you set the course, you start going after it, but over time you'll slowly drift away from it. Even if you never explicitly reject it or explicitly change it, you just kind of drift away from it. 
Human beings have a tendency to forget. We have a tendency to fail to remember. And so uh, it takes, you know, the, the trajectory of, of, again, whether it's doctrine in the church or some, uh, you know, core value or emphasis in, in a people group or a community or an organization, right? You'll have one generation that champions it, hold, right, holds on to it. This is really important. We care a lot about this. Next generation will say, yeah, I believe it. Sure. Why not? Great. I'm all about it. Next generation will say, I got no problem with it. You know, like, sure, that's fine, right? Like the, 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 the value or the, the doctrine or the emphasis will go from being championed and, you know, died for to being held and affirmed to accepted, believed, assumed, forgotten, rejected. Repudiated, resented, detested. It's like this slow drift. Jesus knows that human beings have a tendency to forget the things that are most important, the things that they need to remember. So he institutes the Lord's Supper to help us remember, to keep the gospel, to keep the, the death of Christ, his broken body and shed blood at the center of who we are, and to remind us about it. So that we'll remember it, cherish it, hold fast to it, Never take it for granted. The Lord's Supper was instituted so that we could remember Christ's death for sin. Second, the Lord's Supper was instituted so that we could uh, symbolize the personal appropriating of, or the personal applying of, the death of Christ to ourselves. Right? When you, like, Jesus' death on the cross is this miracle, this miraculous thing that happened, and in order for it to have any effect in your life, in your eternity, it needs to be applied, it needs to be appropriated. You need to take the, the merits, take the benefits of what Jesus accomplished at the cross and make them yours, put them on, like you would eat a meal, right? If you're, if you're starving to death and there's a, there's a meal at your house and you let it sit on the table and you never eat it, You'll starve. If you're sick and dying and the doctor prescribes you the antidote and you never get the prescription filled or you never take the medicine, you'll die from the disease. If someone, someone writes you a check for a million dollars and you put it in a drawer, you never sign it, take it to the bank, cash it, deposit it, you'll never get the money to spend or, or use. The gospel is more than a series of events that happened 2,000 years ago where God came and Jesus lived in our place and died uh, in our place. It is all of those things, and it is then an invitation to respond, to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus, to personally appropriate the merits of Christ's perfect life and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrificial death to us. Jesus dies for us on the cross, satisfies the wrath of God to reconcile us to God, and then invites us to respond by repenting of our sin and trusting in Him. You never do that then the benefits of the cross are never appropriate. That's why in John 6, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. They all say, Well, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus says, The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say, Give us this bread. Jesus says, I am the bread. You have to eat me. Like, take me, appropriate me. It's not enough to know who I am and what I did. You have to take it in. You have to make it yours. You have to 
you know, invited, like trusting is a thing that you do. It's not, not a, an intellectual, you know, piece of knowledge that you affirm. I'm the living bread of life. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. I will give life of the world. Or I will give life. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, there's this personal appropriating, like you would eat a meal. Drinks of his blood is eternal life. I will raise him up. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He will live forever. Jesus doesn't say that to be gross or weird. He says that to help us understand the necessity of personally appropriating through repentance and faith what he did for us on the cross. Communion symbolizes that. It's not a meal that we look at and acknowledge that it exists. It's a meal that we take and we eat it. We put it in us. We, we appropriate it. We apply it to ourselves. We did that way on purpose. The Lord's Supper was instituted so that we could remember Christ's death for sin. It was instituted so that we could personally appropriate and apply Christ's death for sin. And then finally, the Lord's Supper was instituted so that we could celebrate Christ's death for sin together as a family. If your family's anything like mine, and you get together to celebrate, it's usually around food, right? Thanksgiving, emails are swirling. Where are we going to meet? When are we going to do? There's a turkey. Easter, there's a ham. Fourth of July, we'll grill out. Birthday party, there's a, a cake. You'll, you'll rarely get an invitation that reads, please come to my party. There will be nothing to eat. There will be nothing to drink. I'm looking forward to you being there to celebrate with me. That's, a, that's an atypical party invitation. Because usually at a celebration, you eat and drink. And usually when you gather to eat and drink together, it's to celebrate something. That's the case with the Lord's Supper. We're not just remembering the gospel we're not just symbolizing how we appropriate the gospel. We're celebrating it. We're, we're marveling at the, the grace of God that he would save sinners at great expense to himself. And then we, we take a moment and we, we do business with God. We confess our sin to him. We receive his grace. And then we rejoice and we celebrate. It's a, it's a dinner party. It's a, it's a family celebration. And so... so yeah, the Lord's Supper is a family celebration, meaning that it's for the family. It's for the, the family of, of God, right? It's for Christians and not non-Christians. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, if anyone eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, he'll be guilty, and they are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. Taking the Lord's Supper is a sign to the world and to God himself that I love Jesus. I identify with Jesus. I am trusting in Jesus. So don't do it lightly, right? You don't want to bear false witness by taking the Lord's Supper if you are not trusting in Christ. It's reserved for believers and not for non-believers. It's reserved for people who come to church, profess their faith, and then the church has affirmed their profession of, of faith as, as credible, which is, which is actually what, that's what happens when you become a member of this is why the sacraments and church membership are kind of linked together, right? This is why, uh, you know, uh, you know, when we when we introduce communion every week, we say, if you love Jesus, trust Jesus, come join with us at the, at the table. What's implied there, the subtext there is that uh, if you are uh, a committed member of 
uh, of the church where you regularly attend, right? Uh, the Lord's Supper is not this, like, individualistic experience where I determine by my own, you know, declaration that I am a believer, and I, by virtue of my own authority, uh, you know, affirm my own profession of faith, and I declare myself fit to take communion, right? The, the communion table is where we are all coming together saying, I'm a believer, and we are all together saying, yes, I agree with you that you are a believer. That's how the sacraments work, right? I want to be baptized. I'm a believer. And the church says, yes, we think you're a believer. We think your profession of faith is credible, so we want to affirm it. That's what the communion is. Here's my profession of faith. I'm affirming it. The sacraments and church membership are linked together, right? They're, 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 are, they do the same thing. They're all kind of meant to click into the same place at once. You trust Christ, you become part of a church, you start receiving the sacraments that the church has been tasked with guarding and administering to its members. So if you're not a believer, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in him. If you are a believer, and if you're a member, then we would invite you to take communion with us. Right? We would invite you to, when the, when the song, when, when the music starts to come up, uh, take the elements uh, and, and then take a moment, do business with God, repent of sin, receive his grace, trust in him, and then celebrate together. That's if you're a member or if you're moving toward membership, right? If you're, if you're aspiring toward membership, if you're, if you're a believer but um, are actively, like, you know, into perpetuity, refusing to become a member, then we would invite you to, uh, to consider and begin the process of taking uh, of, of pursuing church membership so that the church can kind of do what the sacraments and membership are all designed to do, which is to affirm your profession of faith. So again, uh, it's not that if you're not a member, you can't take communion. It's that uh, if you are actively refusing to become a member for whatever reason, maybe you should question whether or not you are in a place where you should be taking communion. So members take communion, people pursuing membership, please come take communion. Communion, people who are actively refusing to take membership, maybe take a moment and consider why that is, and perhaps repent of it, and, and consider pursuing uh, church membership, because baptism, communion, church membership, those are kind of all uh, intended to kind of accomplish the same thing. I'm going to pray. As I do, I'm going to play music. We're going to uh, have an opportunity to come forward, take the elements. To celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to remember Christ's broken body, Christ's shed blood, the sufficiency of Christ's death in our place, and, and the grace that we have received from God through the gospel. So we're going to sing together. We'll, we'll have the benediction. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you came to save us. You allowed your body to be broken, your blood to be poured out so that we could be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God forever. Lord, we take this time this morning to remember your death, to receive your grace, and to rejoice and to celebrate. In Jesus' name we pray.